Amen. Good. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Christ has died. Good. I don't use that one enough, and you still got it. That's good. First Corinthians chapter one. We're going to find this on page nine hundred and fifty-two of your pew Bible, and encourage you to take that out. We're going to get through a pretty wide chunk of text here uh, in the next forty-five minutes, in order to give you a full view of what Paul thinks of wisdom and folly. Wisdom and folly. This is probably my favorite place in the Bible outside of Proverbs. To think about what it means to be wise as a Christian. And there is a difference between being saved and being wise. Although to be saved is the first step toward wisdom. To acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God is wisdom. But it doesn't mean that just as soon as you've given your heart to Jesus and trusted in your baptism, surrendered your trust to him, it doesn't mean that automatically everything works out the way you think it should or that you see everything clearly. Rather, wisdom is a journey. Wisdom is a path. Wisdom is something that grows inside of you. And the promise of God is that the Bible is, <coughs> excuse me, is going to do that to you by reading, learning, marking, inwardly digesting, praying it. Yeah? And so, well, again, this is kind of where some of that promise comes into a nice tight knot. And we get to see how the Bible is going to be different than the rest of the world. How Jesus and Christianity stand set apart. That means holy with regard to the rest of the world. And one of the ways is that what God thinks is wise is often what man thinks is stupid. And God kind of likes that. And he kind of isn't going to change for anybody. So if you walk around saying that what he thinks is wise is stupid, he's going to let you do it until you prove the point. And that is, again, why the world is in such folly right now. He's letting the devil prove the point of stupidity. He's letting him show everybody, including the rest of the angels, that it doesn't work to try to rebel against God. And in that way, all the things that are his tools for rebellion, he turns them into his weaknesses. And all the things that are the weaknesses of man, he turns into tools for salvation. And this is, again, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Wisdom and Folly. We're not going to read all of both chapters. Uh, we're going to start with verse 18 of chapter 1. All right? Where he says this, again, page 952, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I, I like the word folly. I like the word fool. I like sounding like Mr. T and saying pity the fool. I think it's true. I think it's biblical. I like that language. But the word folly doesn't really convey it. What it is is stupidity. Okay? The word of the cross is stupid. Paul says, to those who are perishing. That is to say that there is a whole group of people out there who do not believe in Jesus Christ, and words about Jesus Christ to them are stupid. It's important to know that. That way when they get angry at you and sneer, you can realize that they're not right, they're just stupid, and they're doing a weird thing by being aggressive because you disagree with them. That is part of their stupidity. It's barbaric, even. It's brutish. Yeah? The word of the cross appears stupid to those who don't believe. Be ready for that. But, again, this is just kind of a, a thesis statement here, but it's going to go on. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
So now Paul is saying there's this thing that the world thinks is stupid that's in fact God working in the world. That thing he calls the word of the cross. We Lutherans like to spend a lot of time on that idea. That's a good thing. That the cross is the heartbeat of Christianity. That the body and blood that died on the cross and rose again, given to eat and drink as he instituted the night before he did it all, that also is the heartbeat of Christianity. If you're going to be Christian, if you're going to be the church, if you're going to be Christianity in the world, you can't do it without the cross of Jesus Christ and his Lord's Supper. can't be done. It will fall. It will become idolatry. And notice, though, those who don't believe this don't believe this. They think it's stupid. They think the church is dying. There's not enough people in the pews. You know what the problem is? We got the wrong music. You fix the music. Then people come back to church. Notice, notice the folly in that, right? It's missing the wisdom of God. This is what the worship wars, some, to some extent, have been about. Is you know, Do we chase our flesh? Do we stay true to what is our own? The point is not the worship wars here, though. The point is to see how if you don't think the cross is enough, nothing's going to be enough and you'll be chasing something else all the time. And Paul wants us to be wise enough to not fall into that kind of stupidity because it's leading to destruction. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Okay, so we've been able to send a, 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 a orbital, I can't think of the word unfortunately, a, so you send it in space. Satellite, thank you. Dave Matthews song here. You send a satellite out into the farthest regions of the solar system so that we can take a picture from Pluto of Earth, and it's this little tiny blue dot, this big speck of black, and the sun's kind of like this sitting here, and we can see the farthest reaches of mankind's ability to know things, and that God says, this is useless to me. I'm, in fact, going to turn it against you that you can do this. All the power of modern man to take a snapshot of a pale blue dot leads to a scientist on TV saying that's all there is, nothing else. Right there is the wrath of God. No recognition that God set that all in its spinning, beautiful array of the heavens that they are so that you could get up this morning. So you could have a sip of coffee, eat some breakfast, say how to your family. Like, all that's there, and never mentioned on the science fiction show. Instead, it's, it's just, it's all nothing, it's all accident. God is thwarting modern man's mind by letting him believe he's wise because he knows a little, and he knows just enough to lead himself into a pit that is his destruction. Verse 20, what good is it? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's talking about the cross again. This ain't no Hercules story, right? Uh, this isn't the overcomer, power that be with his sword in hand going up against the demon. This is a dead man on a cross who said, I'm God. It's completely the opposite of what everybody wants life to be on earth. We even would prefer, I would prefer, I'll confess it, I like thinking of that moment on the cross as the moment when the archangel Michael is striking the devil with a vicious wound in the battle in heaven that's arrayed behind it all. You know why I like that better? Because it's not the cross. That's my flesh. That's my desire for glory, right? That's my wanting to hold on to things that are passing away. What good is any of that, Paul asks. It doesn't help you. What you need is for God to come from outside of you and tell you what's true. 
regardless of what you wanted to think. Yeah? And so, verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. You can't get spiritual by thinking about it more. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You're not going to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're not going to psychoanalyze your way into faith. Rather, a word from outside of you, old Lutherans, extra nos, from outside of you, a word comes and says something you would never have thought, you would never have chosen, you would have never believed, and you find you believe it. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. The world doesn't know God through studying the world. Rather, God has to reveal it to you. And to make this point, he has made those who study the world without looking for his word into men who by their own genius will destroy themselves. To know that as Christians, that we're going to pass through a world where that's happening all the time to many people, is to begin to be wise in Christianity's eyes. Yeah? Now, he talks about the ways that we reject the cross. Verse 22, Jews, he says, demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. That was two very real cultures back then that were at odds with each other, but it does serve as a nice uh, summary of the two ways most people will not like the idea of extra nose word of God feeding your faith. What they would prefer is signs, or what they would prefer is clever ideas. But just the story of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, that's not enough. Show me what God can do for me. Let me test God a little bit. Will he heal my diseases? Will he answer my prayers? If I take him home like a toaster oven and try him for 30 days, will I want to return him? Demanding signs. Yeah. Or seeking wisdom. Uh, I need to have the greatest understanding. The Trinity must make sense to me. I don't like this idea that I can't understand how baptism works. I'm bothered by the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God and man. It doesn't add up mathematically. That's seeking wisdom. That's wanting your reason to be dominant over what God has said, rather than having your understanding be founded on what God has said, right? So as we go forward... Paul's talking about the wisdom of the world right now and about how this is bad. He's going to get to a point, though, where I started us. There is a Christian wisdom. That's our goal to walk away with that today. A Christian wisdom. But no, then, that means the wisdom of the world that demands God explain himself. I can't wait to get to heaven. I get all these questions. I don't know why God did this. Wow. What's the clay going to say to the potter? Are you going to stand up and, and boast in his sight? I, I don't think so. How about, I can't wait to get to heaven where I won't worry about whether I understand anymore. How about that? How about I can't wait to get to heaven where, where God is God and that's good. He says things I don't get, but they give me blessings. Okay? You know, that's the opposite of the Greeks seeking wisdom. Then, okay? Verse 23, what do we do? We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. It's about Jesus. It's not, not about you, your faith is inside of you, put there by the Holy Spirit, to be you forever. But that faith is trust in Jesus. So there is, in fact, a relationship there between you and God. Not because you gave your heart to him, but because he came and took your heart. Demanded that it was his own. 
preaching Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, right? So again, the Jew-Gentile thing there, both the same issue, that Christ crucified isn't enough for the unbeliever. It's stupid to the one who is perishing. But, verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, and please include yourself in this, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So what looks to the world like folly, a dead man on the cross, is in fact the almighty power of the everlasting God, creating a vicarious atonement for the sake of the sins of the entire world, is doing much more than what you see. And here's a huge lesson then. Wisdom is in knowing, Christian wisdom, the one you want, is in knowing that there's more going on than what you see. Always. I said it last week. Did you pick up on it? Yours is not the only angel in the room right now. It's kind of cool to ponder that. There's more going on than what you see. Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. He is working all things for the good of those who love him. There is no accident so far as Jesus is concerned. Or try this one on. All your problems so far as Jesus is concerned, are just solutions you haven't understood yet. He's given you all sorts of things you need. And you're like, oh, it's my problems. How about, oh, it's a gift from Jesus. I wonder why he gave it to me. Again, the power of God to be present in where you don't expect it to be, in the cross. Okay, so verse 25, nice verse, good verse to highlight. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. In many ways, this is the point of the entire salvific reality. God says to the devil, you can make up a word, and next to my word, it will prove itself stupid. It cannot compete. Because I, God the Father, I, God the Son, I, God the Spirit, I'm, I am the word. I'm not just bringing the word, I am the word. All your words are reflections of me, God says. And here comes the devil. Did God really say? Right? He twists it. He twists it. And he calls it foolish. And so God's like, okay, you called my word foolish? Well, try this one on for size. I'll give you a word that's actually foolish. It will prove more wise than all that you ever said. The seed will be born of woman and will crush your head. I'll take a man. Just a man, more than just a man, but just a man all the same. I'll take a man to defeat a demon with it, with a death. Now, again, he turns it on his head. His foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. His weakness is stronger than men. Christ on the cross is weak. He's weak. He's in pain. He's suffering. And he's stronger than any hero has ever been. Yeah? Verse 26, our text for today. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Uh, you can summarize that with something that I, I hope is a little insulting to you, and yet I hope you get over it. And what he says is, you know, you're, you're all commoners. Most of you Christians, you're commoners. Nothing special about you. You aren't famous. You don't got a private jet. You don't say to this servant, go do this, and he does it all the time. It doesn't work like that for you. You're not special, you're not outstanding, you're not a king, you're not nobility. You're just people trying to live quiet lives. That's actually good, right? Well, it's not bad to be a commoner, it's kind of nice. Uh, more money, more problems, I believe, is the way the phrase goes. Uh, so, but he's saying that know this, 
That in the church, don't expect all the power of the world to just show up at the church, ever. And it, that by the time that it does, hello, papacy, you got some problems, actually. Now, the church is leavened inside of the lump. It's a net being dragged through the sea. It is not a replacement vehicle for earth. So again, consider your calling, brothers. When you come to the Christian community and you bow down before Jesus to receive his word, expect that among you will be those who are fools, those who aren't rich, those who don't know where you're going or what you're doing, those who are struggling with life. That's those who are called. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. If God were going to go out and pick all the best people for an army to fight the demons of darkness based upon what we think we should get together, need a whole bunch of people with laptops, some briefcases, I don't know, maybe some munitions, I have no idea. We'd go out and do it like military. And instead, what does he do? He calls you, this group, this is his army, not to go fight like an army, but again, to open the word and pray it like it's your sword. He chose you who are, the, the world would call that a foolish approach. You're just going to pray? In fact, I saw that in a meme about two years ago, I think. Like, there was a school shooting, I believe. And there was something, the meme was along the lines of, uh, you know, Christians are just going to pray about this. We're going to outlaw guns. Something like that, right? And the idea, forget the gun thing. I mean, whatever. We can argue about that. But, but Christians are just going to pray about this. Notice the, the rank atheism in that. The scoffing atheist. What do you mean just going to pray about this? I'm going to turn to the almighty God and ask him to do something. What are you going to do? Go be a putz? Go try it on your own? Have fun. How's that worked in history for you? doesn't work out that way. Again, God chose us to put to shame the world by being different, by believing in him. Huh? He chose then what is weak in the world. We don't have the political power to outlaw uh, abortion in Rockford. We don't have that. But we're going to shame the strong by turning to our God in prayer that innocent blood would stop being shed on our shores. We're going to shame the strong by picking up the true weapon of the word of God and praying even against our enemies. Have you ever discovered that? Now, I'm off on a tangent here for a moment, but, but uh, in Psalm 35, write that one down. Go home. Read Psalm 35. See if you can get through it without stopping. You're going to be like, can I pray this? Am I allowed to pray this? Try Psalm 109 on for, for starters there too. Again, uh, Psalms against your enemies. And then when you ask, if, if you do this, you actually go home and do this, and you're like, can I pray this? Say, say to yourself, I'm praying this against the abortion clinic. Suddenly the whole thing will make sense. You go, oh, I can pray this. I can pray this. Yeah. Shaming the strong with the word of God. Verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. That's about you, but it's also about the cross again. Notice that. The thing that's not death on a cross. It's nothing before Jesus. It's a punishment for a slave. Now it's all things to all people, drawing all men to himself, right? Bringing to nothing the things that are. You know, all the civilizations of this world rise and fall, and they're going to collapse in fire at the last day. And yet this man on the cross and his crown, the scars he continues to carry from those thorns, they will last forever, right? All of this done so that... Verse 29, no human being, I'm pretty sure it says man in the Greek, no man might boast in the presence of God. So the goal here of God taking everything we would expect, doing it upside down, but saving us for it, is so that when we come to trust in him, we don't say, well, yeah, I saw it all along. Deserved it, actually. Right? The idea is instead that we say, hallelujah, I don't deserve it. 
I don't deserve it. Hallelujah. I never will deserve it. Hallelujah. I'm going to try hard this week. I'm going to try to be a man of integrity. I'm going to fail. Hallelujah. I'm not going to stop and keep walking. Hallelujah. Right? That's the goal is to get us to that point where rather than trying to prop ourselves up as proof that God loves us, we can just know God loves us and start propping up others. Completely different way of being. Yeah? Even holy spirituality, I might call it. Not boasting. Verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. That's because of God the Father who's put you in Christ Jesus. Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Old Testament, Yahweh, Jesus. Let the one who boasts, boast in Jesus. Okay? Now, Jesus then has become, it says, four things there. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All completely different ideas. Uh, wisdom, to be able to see clearly. The words of Jesus will teach you how. I suggest read Proverbs sometime as well. Uh, the word, or wisdom, to see clearly. Righteousness. This is goodness. This is to do good. It also is the good Jesus has done for you. The active righteousness he did in his life as the one who died for the sins of the world so that you have a righteousness not your own promised to you. But that righteousness not your own promised to you has become your own by faith. And so it's not like you're going to wallow in the sin and be like, I like being evil. Rather, the Holy Spirit is going to begin making you want to be good. And so you're going to desire righteousness in your own life, not just of faith, but also of works. Two kinds of righteousness. Jesus is all of it. So even after you've done the good works, you don't turn around and say, look what I did for you, Jesus, or Jesus, I did that, give me this now. You turn around and say, thank you, Jesus, for that gift. You made it so I was able to do this to that person. Thank you, Jesus, for that gift. I fed the poor. Thank you, Jesus, for that gift. I had a lovely, non-argumentative conversation with my enemy. Thank you, Jesus, for that gift. Right? See, the works are all given to you. Yeah? Jesus has become these things. Sanctification, that's not about good works. Sanctification is about proximity to God. How close are you to the actual God? How holy are you is about how close you are to the actual God. And Jesus has taken you into the highest heaven, holy presence, right hand of God the Father. Period. Declare it in your baptism. Feeds you it with the supper. Sanctification. You're set apart from the rest of the world by your nearness to God in Jesus. And finally, redemption. Uh, this would be like the vicarious atonement kind of word here. Buying you. Bought you at auction like a slave, only worse than that, you're a rebel and a traitor doomed to die. And he says, I want that one to be not my slave, but my son. Redemption. Ooh, good stuff. So much just in those four words. We could spend a, a lifetime on those four words. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's why you boast in Jesus. He's the one doing all this. He's the one giving it all to you. You want to know how to boast in Jesus? Hallelujah. Say it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just like that. Something happens in your life, you say hallelujah, it means praise Jesus. Just like that, you boasted in Jesus. Yeah? Maybe we'll all say hallelujah more this week, Deo Valente. There you go, good. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. This is so important for us Lutherans. So important, given where we are in history. When you hear me go Lutheranism with a bad taste in my mouth, it isn't because I don't think Lutheranism, Lutheran churches matter. It's because we're at a point in history where we're tripping ourselves by tying our own shoelaces together over things that aren't really what we're about. 
And you don't all necessarily know that. You're not all up to date on the politics of the Missouri Senate and the blah, 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 and on and on. You don't need to be. But what I need you to know is that I think we're at a time where we want to recover as much of our Lutheran identity as possible while stopping trying to save Lutheranism from what it was that isn't its essence. Now, let me just, I can give you right off the bat, it'll hurt a little bit. I give you a very clear example, okay? You've gone through it, St. Paul. It is a day school of the essence of the Church of Jesus Christ? No, it's not. Does that mean it's bad? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means it's not of the essence. We live in a time when we have to ask, what's the essence? Let's hold on to that tight. Because there's a lot of other things distracting us. Now, one of the things that is a distraction in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is making sure that we always think we can say it right. We work really hard, pastors especially, to not say anything in a way that might ever be misunderstood by anyone. We spend a great deal of time trying to craft our speech. Pastors, most pastors, spend multiple hours writing out their sermon, like essays or stories, hours to do this, so that they can be clear that they didn't make any mistakes. And here Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. He wasn't too worried about saying it just right all the time. Instead, or let me say this differently. He wasn't too worried about trying to manipulate his words to get the right response from the people. You follow that? Like trying to craft the word of God so more people come to church. That's not what he was doing. Rather, instead, he came with the word he was given. He said, this is the word that I'm given. I can't explain some of it to you. I don't have lofty wisdom beyond the heavens itself, but this is what Jesus said. I pass on to you what I received. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. On and on there. But the point is, he didn't try to convince them. He didn't try to cajole them. He certainly didn't try to trick them or pull them in with some sort of catchy show. Instead... I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he decided to believe that the word of God was the only thing that could make a church. And while he was there with them, he's talking about planting the church in Corinth. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Back to verse 3, I was with you in fear and trembling. Well, Paul's in this pagan foreign city. He's got a couple of those pagans listening to him talk about what the Bible says. And he's got people that want to kill him all over the world. They've been chasing him. He came to the city because he's trying to get away. He's not exactly sure what tomorrow holds for him. He's just like you. Filled with anxiety and concern. Yeah? And as he's going about this city, planting this church, nervous as the day is long, not sure what's coming next, knowing Jesus has sent him, knowing his God is with him, he's not doubting that. But again, he's, he's a human too. He's got to deal with the pack dynamic. Verse 4, speech and message were not implausible words of wisdom. I didn't make it my goal to convince everybody. I didn't go out of my way to be extra winsome or to be extra nice, I certainly didn't change what I believed to get one more person to come. 
That's the real danger here, right? When you want to talk about what's happened to the American Christian churches over 60 years, we have changed what we believe in an attempt to get more people to come. Paul says, I didn't do that. Why? Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. You know, I don't know if you know this. Um, you know, there's these big, big churches. Don't think city first. Think way bigger than city first. Big, big churches that set the mark for being a big church in the 80s. Two of them, uh, one in the Chicago area, Willow Creek, and one out in, uh, in the L.A. area, I think, Pasadena. Um, I'm going to lose the name of it, Rick Warren's church. Crystal. Uh, Crystal? No, but there's the Crystal Cathedral, too. So same, same kind of thing, okay? Crystal Cathedral is a good example, uh, where, again, massive, massive church. They're doing it all right. People are driving an hour and a half to get to church every Sunday, and it's filled with people, and they're all piling the money in the plate, and the guy's preaching about how they're going to get more money. It's kind of amazing thing. So, but what happens? Well, they go on great until the guy retires. And the guy retires, and what happens? The next guy's not that guy. And the place starts to wonder, what are we? Because what they were was the words of a man. And the next guy who came in, he didn't have the same shepherd's voice as that man who was there. And as a result, then, well, that place, I think, went bankrupt, I don't know, seven years ago, eight years ago, something like that. Got, they bought it back. Like, they bought their own building so they could lease it from whoever they sold it to. You know the story, you know? Try to hold on at all costs. Uh, point of this here being, again, trusting in the wisdom of men. Trusting in the wisdom of men. If the pastor is just preaching his ideas to you, it will pass away. When the church is built upon the words of Jesus, it will never pass away. Because... In verse 6, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. It isn't just about how saying everything's stupid. <laughs> it's all stupid, stupid, stupid. Although Ecclesiastes, I mean, vanity of vanities, it's kind of there. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, right? It's not about solving gravity. It's something more than that. All of the things of this age, you know, even fusion, gold fusion, you figure it out. Well, it's still doomed to pass away. Doesn't mean don't figure out cold fusion. If you know, share it with me. We'll, we'll make some money. But, but it's going to pass away. Live your life like it's going to pass away. Knowing this secret and hidden wisdom of God. Verse 7. That God decreed before the ages for our glory. Right? Which is that you are in Christ. That you are a sojourner walking through a barren land toward your real life. Which begins when Jesus comes back or when you die. And yet it has already begun because you can see it now. So you don't have to live like the rest of the zombies. Yeah? Verse 8, the zombies. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Right? This is why not many of you are powerful. If you end up powerful, it's hard to understand this. It's hard to trust this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We could spend time on that, but we'll, we'll leave that one there for now. But as it is written, oh, it's great, Isaiah. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So the Isaiah passage is about how the limitation of man's heart and mind is, is so real that God can plan all sorts of stuff and we can't even picture it. We can't even imagine it. So here's an example, the, the life of the world to come. I know you've heard about the wolf and the lamb, or sometimes the lion and the lamb are going to lie down next to each other. 
We also know, however, that in the life of the world to come, things are going to be a little different than they are here. So on the one hand, we know what's coming when Jesus returns is paradise restored, just like the Garden of Eden. But we also know it's going to be version 2.0. There's an update to this. So that as your body is right now, is kind of like a seed compared to the flower, it's going to be in the day of resurrection. And that's, a, that's an order of kind difference there, okay? And so uh, are there even going to be lions? Does your puppy get to go to heaven? I don't know. Is there going to be a creation? Yes, there's definitely going to be a creation. Do I hope my puppy goes to heaven? I won't mind it if he gets there. If he's not there, I'm going to say hallelujah, though. All of this is to point to, again, so the lion laying down with the lamb. When we get to the white throne judgment and we walk through the gates, are we going to see it on display? There's the lion, there's the lamb fulfilling the prophecy. I don't know. I mean, maybe. And if that's what happens, that's fine. But on the other hand, maybe the whole point of that lion and lamb thing is that it's beyond our imagination. It's beyond our imagination. What's going to happen? Yeah. So again, what is beyond our imagination, God has revealed to us already in the Spirit. Yeah. And this is, of course, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. This is the knowledge of the end of the world that's good news for you, not bad news. Don't have to try to stop it. This is also the wisdom to see that in this present age, everything is here for sacrifice. Everything you're given can be taken away, so you might as well share it while you can. That's actually the good thing. That's the good thing to do with it. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us. So there's that, there's like two verses there that are they're a little philosophical. It's kind of like, well, you know, how, what, how's the Spirit work within a man? And then how is God and his Holy Spirit like that? And so you can know what I'm saying is true. Sort of what he says there. But what he's saying that's true is important at the end. So we have a Spirit who knows everything God knows because he is God. We have the Spirit that's been given to you to inhabit you. Not the spirit of the world. That'd be the devil. Okay? The devil does not inhabit you. Your flesh, your sinful flesh, it's actually still on the devil's side. You got this old man around you, in you, still on the devil's side, but that ain't you anymore. The sin living in you, it's not you anymore. You gotta fight it. Don't wanna let it get a leg up, but, but as far as God is concerned, you are his. You're his temple, you're his tabernacle, you're his child. He has put his Holy Spirit within you. You have received the Spirit, not the Spirit of the world. So then know this, right? That's the wisdom. That when you walk out of here today, again, can you imagine that we all are glowing? We all got fire on our heads like on Pentecost, we're glowing. But no one else in the world can see it. And you walk out of here today and you go wherever you're going to go, go to dinner at your parents, and go to Walmart, whatever. Now keep that picture going, though. You're, you're glowing. You're shining like that, right? And you walk out in Walmart, you notice there's not much glow going on, but there's another one. There goes another one. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is us, yes? The spirit is in you. God has established this to set you apart from the rest of the world. But then again, this means not listening 
to the world so much. Huh? We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. It builds understanding. Identity. Yeah? Identity. Conviction is very much tied to identity. Identity in Christianity is all about baptism into Christ. Verse 13, we impart in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And which is to say, again, we open the Bible, we read it, and we find that God is at work there. But remember how we started this? There's those who just don't, those who just won't. That's verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is why working up your anxiety over convincing that friend or family member who's not a Christian to become a Christian is just kind of beating your head against a brick. Just beating your head against a brick. The natural person is not going to believe because you figured out how to say it right. It's not going to happen. God has the potential through the word of God that you speak to break their heart and make them believe. Don't get me wrong. And don't stop saying things. Just stop carrying the anxiety of having to say it right enough to work. Because that part's not up to you. No. It's spiritually discerned. It's up to God. So if you really, really want someone to believe, then pray a psalm every day with their name attached to it somehow. Try that on for size. See what it does to your spiritual walk. Right? The natural person does not believe. We live amongst a people of unclean lips. We live in a country that is not, is not, never has been a Christian country. It's been filled with Christians. Many Christians were here. They influenced things in good ways. How many civilizations in the history of the world outlaws slavery? Just ours. <laughs> Just ours. That's Christianity. Okay? There's, there's good here that has been done and could be done, but at the moment you have to acknowledge a lot of that's been rejected outright. It's not being taken away. It's not a culture war. It is rejected outright. So the natural man is what you're walking with around you all the time. Be wise to it. Don't be surprised when they don't agree with you. When you stand out, when you're different, don't be surprised. Yeah? Verse 15, the spiritual person, that's you, judges all things. I thought Jesus said, judge not. I'll come back to that. He judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as, as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So two more things there. Kind of wrap it up. A spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. When Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged, he doesn't mean never believe anything's true and hold to it. That's how most people use the phrase, judge not, don't judge me. I mean, don't believe something other than what I believe and hold to it. Well, Jesus didn't say that. What he's getting at in judge not lest he be judged is the reality that the measure you use to judge other people is the measure God tends to use to judge you in the present life. So if you're going to walk around talking about how that guy does all that stuff and you go do your own version of it, you got your own coming to you. That's judge not lest ye be judged. Instead, perhaps have a bone of mercy, a little sympathy, right? Reach out to the person who you see as your enemy, or at least pray for them, both for their destruction, because you're supposed to, but also that means their repentance, right? their faith that they not be destroyed. So 
again, judge not, yes, lest ye be judged, doesn't mean never know what right and wrong is, never say what right and wrong is. It just means have a bone of mercy in your body and stop thinking you're better than everybody else. But now here, Paul says, you do need to judge. The spiritual person judges all things. The Christian must be able to make judgments about the Christian's life. And you're going to, with the word of God, wisely. If you spend time praying the Psalms, reading the Proverbs every single day, you're going to start seeing them out in the world around you. You're like, wait a minute, there's a proverb about that. I've seen this happen before. Yeah, You're going to pass judgment. That's a good thing, to bring good measurements into the world. And do this knowing you're judged by no one. You might be wrong. You might have an opinion that's wrong. You know what? It's okay. Jesus has already judged you innocent, so you can just repent. You can just change your mind. You can just say you're sorry. There's no judgment for you anymore so far as Jesus is concerned. So he's made you one, given the wisdom to begin to see how his word is working in the world and declare to you that even when you don't get it right, he loves you anyway. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And now, verse 16, do you notice the quotation marks around that? You see that there? It's got quotes. You may remember this. 1 Corinthians seems to be written in response to another letter. And he's putting parts of that letter into his own writing and then responding to them. And so this section we just looked at is in a bigger section about how he is being scoffed at as an apostle. Because some follow Apollos, some follow Peter, some follow Christ. They're all arguing about who's really the person that's coolest and should be in charge. And one of the things that they say then, perhaps, in these arguments, when one says, you know, Paul says, don't do this, they go, well, who knows the mind of the Lord? Sort of like, that's just your opinion. And so now here he's quoting at the end of this big called a diatribe, this big exhortation to understanding the place of grace and wisdom in your life. And he says, are you going to say to me now, after I just promised you that God sent me to proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ to you, that I don't know the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, so maybe it's true? I'll tell you what, I got the mind of Jesus. How can he say that? Because he's got the word. Because he's got the word. No one can say to you that's just your opinion. No one can say to you that's irrelevant when it's the word. Or if they say it, they just show their own stripes again. The natural man is going to reject these things. But, but you, spiritual man, resurrected man, regenerated man, baptized man, you are going to walk in the wisdom of knowing who your God is, what your God has done, what your God is going to do. Now all of this is revealed for you in the wisdom it is the cross of Jesus Christ. You're going to see it this week. Deo Valente. Deo Valente. In the name of Jesus. Amen.